Uh, this morning then, folks, we are going to be continuing um, in our series in the, the letter of James. And had James been alive today, I think I know what trainers he would have worn as his preference. I reckon James would have gone for Nike. Not because of their comfort or style or their swoosh, but because of their famous tagline, just do it, just do it. Because James is all about doing, backing up what you say with your actions, with your deeds. And the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is chapter 2 of James, verses 14 to 26. This is considered as one of the most controversial bits of James's letter. Indeed, it is considered by many as one of the most controversial passages in the entire New Testament. And I know that both Reuben and Patrick have spoken on this passage in Castlereagh Fellowship in fairly recent times. So what more is there for a man to say? I was tempted to omit this passage altogether, but that might look a bit strange for the three people who are following this series online. So I'm going to persevere. The reason why and we'll read the passage in a moment, but the reason why this passage is regarded as controversial is that what James teaches here is said by many to be in conflict with the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And then that um, alleged contradiction has been used by liberal critics of Scripture to discredit the supposed unity of the biblical message to discredit the scriptures. The topic is that of the relationship between faith and works. Indeed, certain commentators believe that James wrote what he did because he wanted to attack Paul's teachings. Others think that James was not attacking what Paul had himself taught, but a distorted version of what Paul had taught. Basically, the idea that Christians could live however they pleased, whatever way they liked, because Paul had said that Christians are not under law. And this is known by the fancy term of antinomianism. Live as you like because you are not under God's law. It doesn't matter how you live. Still others believe that James's teaching wasn't aimed at what Paul had taught or even a twisted version of what Paul had taught. That James was addressing an entirely different situation amongst his readers, where the people of God were failing to love their brothers. 
and needed to be reminded of their obligations to each other. Whatever the truth of the situation, we must tackle head on this alleged discrepancy between what James taught on the issue of faith versus works and what Paul taught on the topic. And obviously Reuben and Patrick have both dealt with this and I'm sure you remember everything that they, they said. So we're going to do our reading. It's James chapter 2 and then we're going to read from verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If any one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith. I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend." You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So James begins by posing a question. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? And note that it says that the man claims to have faith, not that he actually possesses it. It's a faith that is unmatched by any accompanying deeds. And the clear inference is that it will do the man no good at all, and it certainly won't save him. For James, this is bogus faith. This is counterfeit faith. James then presents a hypothetical scenario to develop his point. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. That is, he's cold and hungry. 
If any of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, shalom, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And the expected answer is a resounding no good at all. James concludes that such faith, faith by itself, that is faith unaccompanied by works or actions, is dead. And I could not uh, but think of what the Apostle John wrote. And John, remember, was similarly concerned with bogus faith. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. 1 John 4, verses 17 to 18. As Sam Albury puts it, a deedless faith is a dead faith. And to prove his contention that faith must be accompanied by works for it to be effectual, James engages in what is known as a diatribe. That is, he imagines that he is debating with an opponent. And this opponent will maintain that it is possible to divorce faith from works. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. In other words, there are like two types of believers. There are those who concentrate on the cognitive, on the intellectual dimension of faith, the thinkers. And then there are those who are all about practical works, the doers. Each is equally valid, according to his opponent. Now verse 18 of our text is notoriously problematic and the difficulty stems from the fact that in the original Greek uh, manuscripts there's no punctuation and so we don't actually know where the imaginary opponent stops making his case and James starts to counter. James begins his response. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Is that his opponent still speaking as an extension of his argument, or is this the beginning of James, uh, James's counter-argument? Either way, James's position is that faith without works is meaningless. For even the demons believe that God is one. Uh, I like what Kent, Kent Hughes remarked here. Kent Hughes said, there is not a demon in the universe who is an atheist. But the doctrinal orthodoxy of a demon is to no avail before God. Rather, the demons quake before God in terror. Mere intellectual assent to the truths of Christianity is not enough to save you. Such faith is futile. 
What is required is a profession of faith that is supported with works. That is the only legitimate faith in the eyes of God. True faith is more than a verbal profession. As Mitten comments, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology possesses us. James proceeds then to provide his imaginary opponent with concrete evidence that faith without deeds is useless or dead. James first cites Abraham, the esteemed father of the Jewish people and indeed the father of all people of faith and the one who is called the very friend of God. And what James argues is that when Abraham offered his son Isaac upon the altar in obedience to God's command, his faith was made complete by what he did. The idea is that of Abraham's faith being demonstrated to be genuine. Abraham had already been declared righteous or justified by God when he had previously believed God's promise to him that he would become the father of God's people despite his and Sarah's advanced ages. That had occurred way back in Genesis chapter 15. But 30 years later, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham proved the genuineness of his righteous standing before God by his willingness to offer up the child of promise to death. And the writer to the Hebrews, of course, tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac back to life. Hebrews 11, verse 19. And what makes James's choice of Abraham and the references to Genesis so um, significant is that the apostle Paul uses the crediting of righteousness to Abraham in Genesis 15 as proof of his contention that a man is justified on the basis of faith alone. You'll read that in Romans chapter 4. Whereas here, James uses Genesis 22 to show that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. At face value, it does seem that the critics are right. James and Paul seem to be at odds with one another. But as we shall see, this isn't so. What James and Paul say is actually complementary, not contradictory. But hold on to that thought just for now. For the present, let's go with James's assertion that without deeds, a claim to possess faith is hollow. James has one more historical figure to call upon as a witness for his case, and that, of course, is Rahab. The contrast with Abraham couldn't be more stark. Abraham, the distinguished elder statesman of Israel, Rahab, 
the Gentile prostitute. But Rahab was also deemed to be righteous for what she did in hiding the Jewish spies from her own people. As Hebrews 11 verse 31 tells us, Rahab's actions were motivated by her faith in Israel's God. But James's point is that Rahab's faith, Rahab's justified righteous status before God were demonstrated by her high-risk actions. And so James concludes, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith without works is akin to a lifeless body. As Kent Hughes puts it, faith without action, even if it is embalmed in a beautifully profound creedal statement, is a decaying corpse. It's dead. Faith without deeds is dead. It's just an empty profession. It's empty words. And that takes us then to this morning's lessons. And I have 13, no, I have three, three this morning. Number one, the importance of context to biblical meaning. The importance of context to biblical meaning. In his commentary on the book of James, which, which I uh, read, Alec Mateer writes, It is undeniably true that if we snatch some phrases from their context in the present passage, we can make James fall out with Paul. But the error is ours in forcing a meaning which the context disallows. You see, we must remember that the Apostle Paul was dealing with a situation of over-reliance on works. That is, where his opponents, <coughs> excuse me, his opponents were teaching that observance of the works of the law, including its ceremonial aspects, that was necessary for a person's salvation. Unless you were circumcised, unless you kept the Sabbath, unless you observed Jewish food laws, you could not be saved. And Paul is absolutely adamant that salvation, being declared righteous before God, has nothing to do with such works. Salvation is by faith alone. No one, he says, is justified by observance of the law. Galatians 2 verse 16. Paul is thus dealing with works as a means of salvation, or if you like, works that come before your conversion to Christ. Useless, he says. Good works will never make you right with God. Only faith will. And when Paul speaks of justification, he's talking about that initial transfer of a person from the realm of sin and death to that of holiness and life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Good works are redundant 
in securing such justification. You become right in the sight of God, not by works, but by faith in God and his Son. But the context in which James is speaking is different. James is challenging the behavior of those who claim to be already within the community of faith, but whose lives just do not match up with their profession. If you like, the problem this time is an under-reliance upon works. If you live a life characterized by selfishness, unresponsiveness to the needs of the poor, favoritism towards the wealthy, remember Francis' seat from, from last time, no control over your tongue, friendship with the world, immorality, then it doesn't matter what you profess. Your claim to possess saving faith is bogus. It is false. True faith always manifests itself in good works, or to use James's preferred term, deeds. So James is dealing with works after profession of faith. He's not talking about how you come to know Christ in the first place. He's talking about those who profess to know Christ, but whose lives just do not match up in any way with that. Post-conversion works. Thus, when Paul speaks of faith alone, he means it in the positive sense of only faith gets you into God's kingdom. Whereas when James speaks of faith alone, he means it in the negative sense of mere mental assent to doctrine, faith without works. And when James speaks of justification, he's thinking not about that initial act where God transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light upon your confession of faith in his son. James is thinking of justification more in terms of an assessment of a person's life where his good deeds provide the concrete evidence that what he professes to believe is genuine, is true. His life matches up with his profession. Justification is used by James in a demonstrative sense. Here is the evidence that Abraham's profession of faith and his uh, justified st status, that they are genuine. Here is the evidence that Rahab's faith was genuine, that she is truly justified. Look at what she did. Understood this way, there is no conflict between what James says and what Paul says. And I just think it's, it's so interesting for all that people say about, oh, James is just contradicting Paul. Paul was dealing, you know, it was all about the, the, the ceremonial works, you know, keep the Sabbath, keep the food laws, keep the feast days. You must be circumcised. Where in James's letter do you read of circumcision, feast days, food laws? It's not in it because that's not what James was dealing with. 
Paul confirms as well, this is, as well as this, we have to recognize that if you look at the rest of Paul's teachings, you will find that Paul confirms what James says when he talks about, um, for example, in Ephesians 2 verse 10, what does Paul say? We were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. He talks in Romans 1 verse 5 of the obedience that comes from faith. He talks in Galatians 5 verse 6 about your faith expressing itself in love. He talks in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 about how all Christians must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Good deeds, deeds performed after one's conversion to Christ, did count with Paul. Paul was very far from the antinomian that his critics alleged. It is simply not true to say that Paul completely had no place for good works. But the good works come after your confession of faith. They're the proof of your salvation. They don't get you saved in the first instance. The second lesson is to do with the integrity of Scripture. The integrity of Scripture. F.C. Barr is one of the many liberal critics who cited this supposed inconsistency between James and Paul as evidence that the Bible was unreliable, that it was inconsistent. And this is being built upon by today's postmodern critics who argue that there is no one defined Christianity in the Bible. The Bible is full of what they say are multiple Christianities. What each biblical author said was limited by their understanding and their understanding of their surroundings. So Paul would have a different bent on things to what James would have. Each was just making their best attempt at deciphering the mind of God. And all biblical authors, and this applies very much when we think of the Old Testament, all biblical authors were culture-bound in their understanding. Moreover, you will hear from today's postmodern critics that there is no objective meaning in the text of the Bible. There are no timeless truths in the Bible. Therefore, I'm free to interpret Scripture according to my understanding of what I think God is like, what I think God has said, and according to today's cultural norms. What I understand the Bible to say is my truth, and you have no right to tell me that I am wrong. You will hear this, and we, Jim was dealing with it 
last Sunday evening. You'll hear this sort of poison from today's advocates of what is called progressive Christianity. But we in Castlereagh Fellowship are not buying this. We totally repudiate the postmodern approach to truth. Castlereagh Fellowship affirms that whilst we may disagree upon our precise understanding of parts of Scripture, there is a single correct interpretation. If you and I are concluding different things, if you and I are concluding contradictory things in what a Bible passage is saying, then one of us may be correct, but we cannot both be right. According to progressive Christianity, you can both be right. It's your truth and my truth, and they're all equally valid. Moreover, we declare that the Bible is consistent from beginning to end. God inspired the writers of Scripture, and God knew what he meant. God does not speak with a forked tongue. It is indeed the unity of the Bible's central message that is so remarkable, given the number and the varied backgrounds of its authors and the duration over which the Bible was written. Thus, we affirm that Paul and James couldn't have written contradictory truths. Each was inspired by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. We have the utmost confidence in the integrity of the Bible. God has spoken his truth, that is, absolute truth, in the pages of Scripture. Thus, there is God's truth, and there is falsehood. There are doctrines to be believed, and there are doctrines to be rejected. There's the doctrines of God and the doctrines of demons. The Bible is not a hodgepodge of multiple truths from which you are at liberty to just pick and choose. No, it's the perfectly consistent revelation of God to man. And finally, the emptiness of many professions of faith. The emptiness of many professions of faith. One thing that our passage certainly brings to the fore is that it is possible for people to make a false profession of faith. And don't we know all about this? People in our families, our friends, um, famous people as well, who have ditched their evangelical faith or who have just gradually walked away from the path of obedience to Christ. We might say that James's dead faith is alive and well in our world today. Mental assent to the gospel is not enough for salvation. As Sam Albury reminds us, hell is full of good theology. People who mentally assented had the truth right, but they weren't saved. True faith is potent. It will result in a changed life. If you receive new life, 
you will reveal new life. Faith without deeds has been likened to an engine without fuel. A fruitless faith is actually a contradiction in terms according to the Bible. True faith will always result in fruit. John Calvin famously said, faith alone, obviously one of the reformers, you know, faith alone. John Calvin famously said, faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. It's always supported by works. Even Luther, the great critic of the book of James, said of saving faith, it is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. So let's not be gullible. Where someone has professed faith in Christ, but there is no evidence of a changed life, that profession must be considered as false. Remember the words of Jesus himself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Matthew 7, verse 21. A profession of faith that is unmatched by deeds is a faith that is dead, and that is a faith that cannot save. So, if you claim to have faith, just do it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.